the accidental engineer welcome all max of the accidental engineer here today we are joined by adrian bolger welcome adrian hi thanks for coming on the show uh today i mean among other things we'll be talking a bit about software engineering as a career uh adrian went to mit uh, for undergrad got her robotics degree and she has some very interesting perspective to share on the various fields of software, fields of engineering, not just software engineering, as far as careers go. But before we dig into that, it'd be great to hear from you, Adrian, about what your background to engineering was, uh, how you ended up in the field, what what might you have chosen otherwise? Uh, yeah, sure. I have always loved building things, uh, making things. And as a child with access to you know, more typical safe child materials that was, uh, that came out in art. And so I loved art, but I was good at math. And, um, I grew up with the Pixar movies and I originally thought, you know, I wanted to go work for Pixar and make Pixar movies because it was this art, uh, math combination. And so I, uh, actually almost went to art school. I applied to art school as a college, but I had a, a very inspirational math teacher who, when I got into MIT, definitely, you know, told me it would be, it would be a waste and a shame not to go. And she was very influential. So, um, and I found out that I really enjoyed MIT. So I went there, never considered any other career besides software engineering, because I was going to make movies, I was going to make video games. And I actually had the opportunity while at MIT to intern at Pixar, and I loved it there. But I was also given good career advice by people from Pixar, many of whom came from the video game industry, who basically told me the video game industry is terrible, don't work in it. Um, <laughs> many of them, Many of them had soured or had been fired from uh, projects that were canceled mid-production. There were just terrible stories of like layoffs picked at random by, you know, putting slips on people's desks who weren't there that day and a hundred hour weeks on these, these sort of business practices. Uh, and that I should, I should continue wanting to be a software engineer, but that I should look elsewhere from uh, the video game industry. And so I looked at robotics. I picked robotics. I loved robotics, got a graduate degree uh, focused in it. Um, worked at robotics companies early on in my career and moved eventually from this sort of combination of software and uh, embedded software engineering into web development. Uh, and along the way, I discovered I really wanted to start a company. So I'm actually, um, I shifted my focus to healthcare and I'm currently the CTO of Black Health which is a fancy title for an engineering team consisting of me, myself, and I at the moment. But hopefully that will change in the future. In the show notes, we'll include a, include a link to Block Health. It's spelled B-L-O-C, Health. Um, yeah, very recently uh, joined the founding team. For audience that aren't so familiar with maybe the software engineering problems in health, um, you've been in the space for a little bit. Do you mind sharing for our audience what the what the types of software products are that serve the space? Yeah, so different kinds of software that serve healthcare. There's uh, healthcare that tracks medical records, or sorry, there's software that tracks people's medical records. 
There's also software that tracks uh, regulatory compliance because there are so many laws that are designed to protect consumers, but have grown into this massive, massive sort of sets of checklists and processes and procedures that have to be tracked. So uh, a lot of what we're trying to do at Black Health is to build, we'll call it a TurboTax-like engine for uh, hiring and credentialing healthcare professionals. Because even before a doctor gets hired, there are so many requirements to make sure that that doctor um, not is a good doctor. That sounds terrible. Uh, that doctor, <laughs> that, that doctor, too. well, that doctor actually went to medical school, right? Right now, the mm-hmm. the company we're starting, I like to remind myself, wouldn't wouldn't be an industry if people hadn't impersonated doctors in the past. <laughs> um, mm. So mm. there's a lot of checks and balances in the healthcare industry, and people continue building software to try to solve those problems. But what happens is every time someone builds a piece of software, uh, it has to hook into all of the other pieces of software. So mm-hmm. um, one problem that I was just discussing yesterday with a, a potential future user was that her company, her uh, hiring organization um, has finally, after years, developed a system where they keep track of a doctor's information and then nightly they run a script that propagates it to 150 other databases inside their uh, hospital. So the problems of healthcare software engineering are legacy code, but also sprawl, just this massive spider of data um, people talk about big data as if you get, you know, big dumps of data, as if you get one clean, already cleaned, terabyte-sized uh, piece of information ready to dump into a machine learning algorithm. And that's absolutely not the truth in in the healthcare industry. <laughs> it's all over the place. And nobody trusts anyone else with their data. Like, their database mm-hmm. is, is special. Everyone's database is special. Um so yeah, the the problems in healthcare engineering are many and challenging, but maybe not glamorous. <laughs> Fair enough. No, I I think I think this is a a truth that we should share with our audience about software engineering careers, and it's not limited to health either. That oftentimes when people say big data, yeah, they're not talking about you know gigabytes of data, yeah, <laughs> or petabytes of data yeah. in scale. They're talking about well, we've got three databases. <laughs> right now, the data is in one of them. We need to get it to the other two. Yeah. So, yeah, there's yeah. there's there's petabytes of data, but it's spread in like five megabyte chunks across seven thousand computers in a yeah. in a hospital system. Like <laughs> that's interesting. I mean, I the the parallel that immediately jumps to my mind is that unlike in medicine. People are impersonating being software engineers all the time, <laughs> and there's there's no there's no market demand as far as you know uh, being uh, legally liable if you impersonate a software engineer. That's true. Uh, <laughs> so there's a the, there's yeah. a fabulous XKCD comic about um, maybe you can link to it in the in the podcast about how long For sure. you can uh, impersonate someone in a particular field. Uh, before other people in the field notice. And the the punchline for the comic is something about, oh, 
the person has the impersonator has written like four books on literary criticism and the literary criticism folks can't uh, still haven't noticed that he's not an expert in the field. But I'd, I'd like to think that you'd notice quickly if a software engineer isn't a software engineer, but perhaps not. Um, you know. Well, health health practitioners are are obviously um, important to be a regulated field for the reason that uh, yeah, you don't want to go to somebody to perform a procedure on you that has never done that procedure before. That is correct. And, uh, <laughs> And are, are misrepresenting their expertise about having performed the procedure before. Um, is this? I, I mean, I don't think our audience probably has an experience of going into a doctor's office or a hospital, mm-hmm. and uh, that their medical practitioner who walks in the room shows them an ID badge or or has their face scanned and and verified that they are in fact a. Uh, <laughs> a dermatologist or whatnot, but uh, can you share with our audience a little bit about what might be the software interaction that uh, that our end users might encounter when it comes to verifying um, their healthcare practitioners' identities? Right. So at the moment, that burden is not on an end user or a patient. Uh, you are, in fact, um, the the it, that burden falls on the hospital. Um, the hospital is the person held liable. Obviously someone impersonating a doctor could be held criminally liable themselves, but for hiring them in the first place, that responsibility falls on a doctor. And there's an entire process called privileging, which is very, very granular. It's at the, it is at the procedure level. So for an anesthetist, there are, you know, you can do uh, procedures that knock someone out for two hours, but you don't have the qualifications to do the procedures that, you know, induce a coma. Like the, the procedure privileges is what it's called is very, very granular. Uh, and so Mm -hmm. it's the kind of thing that lends itself to massive spreadsheets or actual software. Um, this sounds remarkably like in software, the, the concept of access controls. Yes. It, it is it is access controls, and as anyone who's ever been asked to implement or fix an access control system knows, uh, in software, it, it's very easy to do it badly, right? It's very mm-hmm. easy to um, initially start with sort of broad access, and then realize you've made a mistake, and you know narrow it down. And in healthcare, that's obviously not an option because. Um, well, it is an option, but revoking privileges on someone, which, you know, does get done, is a very, very serious um, sort of offense. If a, if a doctor at a previous hospital had privileges revoked, um, it's, it's quite serious and it would definitely probably affect their, uh, their future career. And it's also illegal to lie about it. So if you were... Uh, if you worked at a hospital and you did surgery and that hospital revoked your privileges to do surgery, uh, that will follow you for the rest of your career. And it will be, it's a big flag, basically. Um, It doesn't mean that person will never work again, but it means that every time they go to another job, the next place they work will have to reinvestigate that. So some of what Black Health is trying to do is make it so that if you're next hospital performs that investigation, that hospital is recorded so that 
other future people um, can use that recording and look at that initial investigation because right now each hospital must do their own um, and they must redo it from the start of someone's career. So if you have a physician or a surgeon, um, in particular surgeons, whether they are um, average or brilliant surgeons, surgeons are much more likely to get sued for malpractice because they work on things that are more dangerous, right? Um, mm-hmm. And so if you are a surgeon with 30 years of experience in the field, the next hospital that hires you uh, has to start from your medical school and go all the way forward through everything. So there's a lot of, and then regenerate information. So part of the big data of healthcare is how many copies of everything you have and whether or not those copies stored at 15 different hospitals all match or not, because they should, and they might not. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Yeah. So it's the, the truthiness to use a, what I'm pretty sure is a Stephen Colbert phrase. um, (laughs) The truthiness of data uh, matters also, not just the fact that there is data. In parallel to medical practitioners, specializations, one of the topics I'd like to ask you about when it comes to your software engineering career and your perspective on software engineering careers among maybe your peers who graduated from MIT uh, in different areas of, of not just engineering, but other hard sciences, let's say. An observation that I've heard you mention previous that I find very relevant to our audience and I think they should hear about is your observation about choosing a specialty impacting your career tra- trajectory. Oh. And I was wondering, similar to maybe a, a medical practitioner choosing to go into plastic surgery, let's say, are, are there are there parallels there with software engineering? What what are what's your observations about the different areas of, of engineering as a as far as careers go? Yeah. So, you know, MIT regularly touts its uh, graduation rate and how great jobs are if you go to MIT. But one thing I realized early on as a as an engineer graduating from there with all of these people that I'd gone to undergrad with who were absolutely just as brilliant as me, got into MIT, um, took all the classes, got the good grades, um, is that your major determines a huge amount of not career success, because most people wouldn't define career success as money only, but your major determines a huge amount of your future salary is what it boils down to. So you can be the world's most brilliant biologist and you will never make as much money as a average software engineer. Um, mm-hmm. You can also, as a software engineer, if you, you know, if you want to make the money going into fields like finance or banking, um, or defense will have a huge impact on your initial paycheck um, and your, uh, as opposed to going into maybe a field like education um, or a field like, uh, you know, eh, healthcare, healthcare pay, pays pretty well for software engineers, but um, maybe video games, maybe video games. <laughs> no. And it's very true. Video game. If you, you can have the best skills, you can be a fantastic software engineer, uh, or, you know, hardcore video game hacker as the, as that particular demographic likes to use the ninja rockstar terms. <laughs> um, and, but there's a lot of other people who want to do that, right? There's a lot of people who want to make video games cause it sounds cool. 
And there's also uh, the profit margins for video games are not actually as large as you think they are. The games take so many people to make. And the other people, your coworkers, are artists. So they're getting paid more like what you would expect an artist's salary out of. And your engineering salary is, you know, not necessarily that far above that. So the difference between choosing to go work at a company that puts software first, like Google or Amazon or Netflix, and choosing to go work at a video game company, at a um, a charity education tech-focused company, will have a huge difference on your initial salary. It's not just title software engineer. Um, And people have different reasons for choosing different ones of those, but what I would like to convey as a as a message to your listeners is that that should be a that should be a deliberate choice it shouldn't be something that you accidentally fall into when you're sort of searching the career fair as a as a senior in college or if you're as you're looking for your next job um i really encourage people to take the time and what they value uh before mm-hmm. they before they choose their next job um because you know you should be you should be planning that before you just look at a bunch of companies and pick the one that seems the most fun. Um, Definitely. And then no, I, I go ahead. Oh, for uh, the other the other thing is for for people who are either considering changing careers or are currently in college and considering between engineering majors, um, the engineering major that you choose also has an outsized effect on your salary. Right now, there's a massive demand for software engineers. People just want them. Software is eating the world. The That translates to higher pay compared to uh, mechanical engineers. It's not that mechanical engineering is not difficult. It's that mechanical engineering isn't quite as different as it was you know, 30 years ago. And so you as a mechanical engineer are sort of competing in a job market against many more experienced mechanical engineers who are still awesome at their jobs. Whereas software engineers who started software engineering 30 years ago, they basically have to go through additional courses, right? You have to use a as a part-time job or a hobby, you have to pick up uh, additional material um, to try to make yourself stand out in a job market. And so it's it's just uh it's it's difficult right it's you want to be able to do what you love first um but you also want to consider where you're doing it definitely i i think this is a very needed piece of advice um uh, as much as i uh love the title of the podcast the excellent engineer sometimes i i have second guessing about whether it might have been better to Call it something less uh, accidental and more purposeful. <laughs> Are you yourself an accidental engineer? So uh, yeah, I, I think the adjective "accidental" might be wrong. I I I took computer science classes in in my undergrad, and my first job out of college was actually finance, and I realized uh, a lot of the things that you're describing right now when it comes to the job market. And uh, part of it is that uh, this is twenty twenty hindsight vision about what the job market's done. But uh, one of the one of the things I I kind of realized, in addition to what you're saying about um, 
it being really important to choose uh, the, the job market has a lot of sway on your success or failure in spite of maybe how hard you work, how many hours you work. Oh, absolutely. uh, (laughs) Well, I guess uh, uh, my favorite example there is I also considered being an architect in high school and I had a friend mm -hmm. with the same grades as me, straight A's all the way through high school, uh, got a scholarship and went off to become an architect. And she graduated with her undergraduate degree in 2009, which was probably the worst time to be an architect or a fresh architecture graduate in, oh, I don't know, since the Great Depression? Like, very, very bad because of the housing crash. No one was building anything at all. No one had any money to build anything. Um, And so she went to grad school as a logical choice, but so did all of her peers. Like, everyone chose graduate school. And so... There's this massive bump of people in 2008, 2009, 2010 who all picked graduate school. And so there's this this massive group, at least among my peers, of um, not overeducated, but there's just a lot more people with advanced degrees because that was that was what the the common sense told everyone to do. I mean, it, to reset yourself in the job, take yourself out of the job market so that when you can re-enter after your graduate program, you can be priced at, you know, compensation that the market has bounced back to, ideally. Mm-hmm. It, it makes it makes a lot of sense. And it was actually something that I considered myself after I steeled myself to quit my finance job was I applied to graduate school in computer science thinking that that was maybe a prerequisite to getting into software engineering. Ah. And uh, <laughs> one of the things I, I realized, and this is pretty, I guess, unique to the United States, is that particularly master's programs in computer science are the most bang for their buck for immigrants. And being a U.S. citizen, the reality is that you don't need an H-1B visa. And Besides taking yourself out of the job market for a period of time for maybe compensation to bounce back, grad school is a great opportunity for immigrants to come to the United States on an F-1 visa right? and then line up a job that has H-1B visa sponsorship. right? And the value add to maybe a U.S. citizen is possibly not as high return on investment considering that master's programs... Um, can go, you know, as easily over 100K all in just, uh, I mean, considering tuition plus cost of living. So the thing I I really love about software engineering as far as careers go is that perhaps unlike architecture, uh, you're really paid on the job to learn. And the more you learn, the more valuable you are to your employer. Obviously, that goes hand in hand, hopefully, <laughs> with your value on the greater job market going up. But there's, it's a really virtuous uh, employer-employee relationship sometimes, <laughs> not all the time. But ideally, in your job, you're, you're becoming uh, a more valuable person on the job market uh, through software engineering where you might not in other fields. So yeah. not only, like you say, is the entry-level compensation pretty dang good compared to the alternatives. But uh, if people uh, stay up to date, learn more skills on the job, 
I mean, you, you should see your compensation go up over the course of your career. So this is one reason I started the podcast is to encourage people to reevaluate maybe how they're approaching and thinking about their careers and, and really push them over the edge if they're thinking about getting into software engineering. Oh yeah. So I think, you know, I love being a software engineer and I, for people who like it, I would certainly encourage it. I have had a couple of perhaps outlier experiences um, com- compared to your described trajectory. One of which was that uh, MIT in particular, uh, because I went there for undergrad, what I didn't realize at the time is that MIT uses their master's program as a filter for who they think belongs in their in their doctoral program in computer science. Mm. And so MIT makes it ridiculously easy to get into the computer science master's program and also to mm. pay for it. They offer, you know, you can be a TA, you can be a research assistant. And so if you have above a, I think it's a 3-5 equivalent, you are auto-admitted to their um, master's program. So I did a master's at MIT, and because I was able to leverage previous um, sort of extra AP class credit, I was able to do that with only one additional semester of work. It's only a year-long program. Um, But I did it because I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. And so I undervalued my master's degree, probably because I didn't have to shell out all the big bucks for it. Um, And I didn't realize until I did, in fact, get into the workforce that people were like, oh, you have a master's degree. That means we have to bump you up in our, you know, our slot program, basically, like, Mm -hmm. you know, oh, big company master's degree, you get this much more money. Um, It was something that, again, it was, you know, 2008, 2009, I sort of I did because I didn't know necessarily what I wanted to do after graduation. Um, and so I did pro- I perhaps did not value it enough uh, compared to the uh, market and certainly probably didn't value it nearly as much as people who've had to shell out that kind of money for it. Um, totally, totally. So, yeah, it's a, yeah. <laughs> it's a, it can be an opportunity cost in, in a really, in a really bull market where compensation is high. The opportunity mm-hmm. cost of going and doing the master's, maybe um, leaving the workforce once you're already in it to go back and do full-time schooling. I also that's, that's quite a that can be a bit different. Yeah, yeah, I had a I have a very wise father in general. Um, but one way <laughs> one way in which that my father is wise is um, my father, well, a business major with an MBA, uh, not an engineer, not not really aimed sort of at engineers. Uh, but my father took an unusual career path as a as a young guy, where he basically chose to go get an MBA right out of undergrad so that he could be a baseball coach. Um, not <laughs> so he he got his graduate school MBA paid for by being the baseball coach for the university or an assistant coach, and you know obviously was he he liked it, but he was he was definitely motivated by something he loved which was coaching baseball um but had since grown in wisdom and had realized told me when i had the chance to do it uh you know yes do your masters before you have a family because once you have a family uh once you have more people relying on you when you're just further on in your career not even a family once you have a a dog and a mortgage um all of these things 
start to detract from your ability to get that extra degree. So if you can get it earlier, uh, like you're saying, the opportunity cost is much lower. Um, Mm -hmm. So for, for people who are still early on in their career, it only gets more difficult from here. I have a friend who completed his actuarial PhD with, you know, a newborn baby on his lap. And he just describes it as the worst, <laughs> like doing, <laughs> doing those two things at the same time um, was just this heroic effort that he never wants to repeat. So, <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, yeah. actuarial uh, sciences, actuarial math, that is a, a rough and highly credential heavy field. Yes. <laughs> Uh, for audience that aren't familiar, these, these are these are the folks who do the math around how to price insurance. Yes, um, and also manage retirement funds, which is a, a very, very, very regulated business, similar to <laughs> medical health. Yeah. Um, because we yeah. don't we don't want people abusing your your retirement funds, basically. Yeah, you, um, such you, as they are. You want, you have, yeah, you should you should have money when you retire, ideally. Ideally. Uh, <laughs> Otherwise, lots of problems happen. That would be a great podcast topic. That's, that's a personal finance, <laughs> personal finance plug for me. Future suggestions. Maybe, maybe we'll speak out a guest who, who comes to us from, from actuarial sciences, specifically the retirement area. Um, that would, I agree. That would be really fascinating uh, stuff to talk about. Well, Adrian, thank you for coming on as a guest. Oh, yeah. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for letting me talk about myself. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, by all means. No, I, I, for our audience that are curious about Block Health, uh, we'll include a link in the show notes. Um, the other thing I'll plug real quick is that you guys should, if you have additional questions, uh, find Adrian Bulger on LinkedIn. Uh, or get in touch with us and we're happy to pass along any questions you might have. But otherwise, thank you, Adrian. Thank you. And, you know, good luck listeners in your, in your careers. And I hope you all love software engineering. For more, visit us on iTunes or our website at theaccidentalengineer.com.